My name is Sadia, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Remember to subscribe and rate the podcast on the podcast app of your choice. And also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. In this segment, I'm going to be continuing the discussion I've been having with Michael Smith and Claire-Anne Lustre about life and politics in South Africa. This time, we'll chat about the state of South Africa's parliamentary politics, as well as the student and labor movements in the country. Michael and Claire-Anne, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Thank it's good to be back. So I was wondering if you guys can give us a sense of the political spectrum in contemporary South Africa. Um, how far left does it extend? How far right does it go? What does that look like? Right. Okay. Well, the ANC is still the overwhelming political force in, in South Africa with near to 60% of the of the vote in the recent uh, recent election. The vote has been steadily declining, the, befo- the proportion of people voting for the ANC, but nonetheless, it is overwhelmingly dominant. And um, the ideological nature of the ANC, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky question because, of course, with this neoliberal drift, people would hold the view that it is it has lost its sort of social democratic um, leanings, but I think that there is enough ambiguity uh, within the ANC that should um, uh, should mean that we are cautious with branding it a neoliberal party. Of course, there, there, there are definitely countervailing tendencies within the ANC. The ANC has all, always been a sort of a broad church, so it's always included communists, uh, socialists, Africanists, people who are more liberal-minded, um, and so on. And so its history has, um, has always been a contest between these forces. And, and recently, of course, since the mid-1990s, there has been a rightward shift in macroeconomic policy, and that's caused a lot of former comrades of the ANC, former left-wing comrades of the ANC, to leave and mm. start new organizations and enter into the social movement realm. So that's an interesting conversation about the ideological bent of the, of the ANC. But in terms of the right, well, as we discussed the, the DA earlier, which is, uh, it builds itself as a, well, at least a, a strong faction of the DA wants to build Can a party. Can you remind us what the DA stands for? The Democratic Alliance. Exactly. So the, a, strong, a strong wing of the Democratic Alliance wants to build it as a sort of a classically liberal party. Mm. So this is the card-carrying neoliberal types. But there's also been a countervailing tendency within the DA, which is born out of its contradictory, its contradictory position. Because on the one hand, it wants to defend this liberal position, but at the same time, it needs to bring in the formerly oppressed members of society, well, mm. from black, 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 and, and so-called coloured and Indian people, into its fold. And what that's done is it's created a lot of tension because there, even though these the people within the DA are they're not left wing in any sense when they're calling for redistribution, they're calling for redistribution narrowly, racially defined, racially mm. defined terms, but nonetheless they are supportive of some type of affirmative action. And this has recently caused a, a fissure within the DA, which has actually seen its, its, its first black leader, uh, Maimane, uh, resign from the party. And uh, I think that Herman Mashaba, you can do a fact check, but I think he was the mayor of Johannesburg. And I think he also resigned on the, because of this dominant sort of, predominantly white, but not completely white, because there are, of course, black people have varied political views and there are black people who are staunch classic uh, liberals, mm-hmm. right? Who are supportive of this no redistribution 
stuff or redistribution that is uh, not aggressive and does, doesn't happen on the axis of, of race while still supporting a sort of a, a right-wing economic free market uh, model. Mm. Um, and then the further right you go, you have the sort of remains of the old National Party and uh, the Freedom Front Press, which is uh, it's representative of the Africana, white Africana minority. Um, the EFF, now the EFF is a special is a special piece, which probably deserves a, a podcast what on its own. What does that stand for? The EFF of the Economic Freedom Fighters, and they split from the ANC. They're the third largest party in, uh, at the moment, and the most success, there have been, they've been various attempts. As I said, there were people who left the ANC for a variety of reasons over the, over the course of the last couple of decades, and they've tried their hand at electoral politics, and most of them have generally failed, but the EFF have managed to secure a significant base. They use radical-sounding slogans. They call themselves a Marxist-Leninist, phenonist party, but they are- What was that last word? Phenonist. Oh, right. phenonist. I, that's the first time I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in a sense, they really tapped into this frustration that we spoke about earlier, about mm. you know the legacy of, of the transition and so on. And they gained a lot of momentum because of that. And they also gained a, quite a foothold in, in sort of youth who are less sentimental and romantic about the ANC, mm. perhaps. But they are a, a very controversial party. I mean, there have been attacks on journalists, there have been racialism and nativism, they've been implicated in corruption. I mean, my view is I, I wouldn't categorize the, the EFF as a, as a left-wing party. Um, I would say that it's quasi-left, quasi quasi-right quasi even, quasi-fascist even. We, oh, could, wow. we could have a discussion about that. Um, some people don't don't think that it's useful to call the EFF fascist or to have that conversation, but I, I, I disagree. I think that we should that we should have that conversation. Um, Are they the ones that have that slogan, the land expropriation without compensation? Yes. So this is one of the militant slogans, which gains a lot of popular support because again, they're tapping into this deep sense of frustration mm. that people that, that people feel about the the current post-apartheid reality. But of course, the ANC has picked up on land redistrib land redistribution themselves too. Um, so there's a school of thought that thinks that the, that the EFF are sort of the left-wing conscience of the ANC, pushing it towards more radical positions. But I think, I think that's a contestable idea. I think that the EFF, the Marxism-Leninism, uh, these slogans about nationalization and so on, without really much meat behind it, or the suspicion that nationalization is really going to mean just more, just accumulation within a particular narrow black black elite. Mm. And then the Fanon, the Fanon aspect, I mean, the Fanon is a, in my reading, is a sort of a racialist or nativist Fanon, which mm. is not Fanon at all, in my view. But that's, in, that's, a, that's a serious debate on the South African left at the moment. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that my, my, my position is necessarily correct. Yeah. So the EFF are really striking because they actually wear bright red worker overalls mm. in parliament and they wear these red berets. Um, the the men in the party and the women wear sort of domestic worker outfits oh. or kind of like well, made almost outfits oh. in parliament. Mm. So it's this very striking presence of saying, you know, we represent the workers. Right. We are sort of the blue collar or red collar in this case. <laughs> um, workers and and they've gained a lot of traction, I think, also just based on this. But the land expropriation without compensation is something that the, the EFF actually brought into public discourse. Mm. Um, and it's something that the ANC has now actually taken up. And 
the there was a motion in in parliament to change the constitution specifically the property clause to allow for land expropriation without compensation which was not on the political agenda prior to the EFF doing so um i mean the first argument against that is that well actually the property clause did already allow for this type of expropriation if it were interpreted in such way because it said you know if it's within the interests of society and you know there are ways in which the existing terminology in the constitution could have been leveraged if there had been significant political will mm. behind it by the ANC beforehand but this issue has now been pushed so it, it is something that is now very pressing for for the ANC but it's something that the EFF did So, so would party. it be fair to say that the EFF and other splits that you're mentioning, Michael, from uh, the NC, have actually been successful in pushing the NC further left? Success is too too yeah. strong a word. I think that it's it's been an open contest, and on some issues, yes, there have been some successes, and largely this has taken place outside of the formal political arena. So I'm thinking about social movements like the Treatment Action Campaign. Uh, which forced or, or played an important role in shifting the ANC's pos- official position on AIDS. Um, so, can you explain that a bit more? Treatment action campaign. So, the treatment action. Yes. So, the, it's you have situated in the ANC's um, uh, Tabo and Berki specifically his view on the relationship between mm. HIV and AIDS, and mm. he 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 disputed that relationship, and it caused a lot of controversy, and it led to a lot of unnecessary deaths. Um, but it's in that context where you have former comrades of the ANC mobilizing outside of its structures mm. in order to push the party in progressive mm. in progressive directions so that's that's one example okay. but there are others that we can think of too um but generally speaking in terms of macroeconomic policy things haven't been as as successful as as we would have liked And so on and in terms of the conversations that are happening with the EFF there isn't a meaningful sort of turn towards social democracy there is no sort of force that is pushing just, the EFF is is populist so they will mm. sort of take on board anything which they think will gain them some kind of traction and in some cases yes these are progressive like the need for real land distribution mm-hmm. um you know with or without compensation i don't know how that is going to play out but that is something which you know is necessary but on the other hand there's you know the eff leaders are <laughs> implicated in corruption scandals mm-hmm. you know and also subscribe to this very um like conspicuous consumption uh, lifestyle so whether they're really left or not which is why michael said he you know he questions whether this is not just a sort of you know riding this political wave because it gets you a seat in parliament and a good salary and and you're in the public eye and if you look at the leader Julius Malema you know he had to pay millions of rands in tax evasion and he mm. paid it you know i mean who who has that kind of money where are you getting that kind of money right. from and there was a massive corruption scandal with the VBS bank recently so it's and the VFS bank was it was a bank no, that VBS bank is it the visa people <laughs> we've been dealing with visa people a lot people. to get to canada yeah. um yeah and that was that it was designed specifically for the poor black population and that the bank was looted 
So there's, mm. there's this really sort of contradictory politics. The question is whether or not the EFF can be a vehicle, a conduit of a broader mm. left agenda. And that's where the debate, because that's where the debate lies. Mm. So on the one hand, some people argue that we put the leadership aside and we look at the fact that there is this, that the EFF is obviously gaining some traction in society, that people are being attracted mm. to these left-sounding uh, slogans, that we can, in a way, see this as a positive development and try to build on this momentum and steer it in, in a more positive, progressive direction. Mm. But of course, that's an empirical question. I haven't seen why exactly people are attracted to the EFF. It might be precisely because they're attracted to the authoritarian posture. They're mm. attracted to racial populism. We don't know. So, you know, the nationalization is not necessarily a left-wing Mm. agenda you know, mass economic redistribution is also not i mean look look at what's happened in the past with with fascist regimes you know so i think that the question the question is is open at least at the mm. very least it's open mm -hmm. but also what the eff was good at doing was during the zuma administration president jacob zuma who was the president just before our current president was calling out the corruption. So one of the famous sort of things that you would always hear when President Jacob Zuma would appear in parliament, the EFF would stand up and say, pay back the money, which became a huge, you know, pay back the money about the money that had been sort of looted from the state to fund President Jacob Zuma's own personal home developments and so forth. So, you know, in terms of its function as an opposition in a parliamentary democracy where it was before a very sort of two ANC versus the mm. Democratic Alliance, which pe many people of color did still, not all obviously, but it, it identified this Democratic Alliance still with the old guard right. of the apartheid regime. So just opening up another space. Mm. And I know people who were only ever ANC voters who you know, for one round did vote EFF because mm. they were like, you know, I'm so pissed off at the ANC and what they've right. done. Like, I'm actually going to just vote for the EFF just mm. to shake things up a bit. So um, I think the EFF still performs a, an important function. You guys had written an article recently that uh, was published in Jacobin. And uh, one of the things that you'd said was that, and I quote, South Africa is participating in a global drift towards democratic fatigue opening itself up to the prospect of a right-wing authoritarian turn, end quote. And I mean, from what you're saying, it seems like uh, the turn is happening more towards the EFF than towards the DA or towards what might be considered a traditional populist right-wing party. Yeah, I mean, the drift, the EFF have have grown and they've, they've grown sort of steadily since they first arrived on the, on, on the electoral scene. But nonetheless, the ANC is still the overwhelming political force in the country. And particularly, we have to speak about the fact that after the transition from Jacob Zuma to Cyril Ramaphosa, I think had, a, had quite a significant impact on the ANC's electoral fortunes. And a lot of people who left the ANC for various reasons, but primarily because of being disgusted by the level of corruption under the Zuma regime, and voted for the EFF as a protest or so on, began to think that maybe under Ramaphosa, who is this very enigmatic but charismatic uh, figure, they thought that you know the ANC represents you know another 
I mean, the ANC could be given another another shot, right? Yeah. So yes, we, there is this potential of a right-wing authoritarian turn, but what's also remarkable is the stability of our electoral landscape. And it's not as if the ANC themselves, though, are free from this authoritarian politics and the sort of a sort of a right-wing nativist politics. The the rhetoric that uh, or the ideology of state capture or the corruption under Zuma was this notion of radical economic transformation, right? So the idea is that we're not we're not looting the state really. We're just empowering black people, and so that engenders its own very dangerous form of politics. And that's happening within the ANC too. So the, when we think about this potential for a right wing authoritarian drift, it has to be cross cross cutting. Mm. We have to look. We have to look at it essentially. I I think as a as rooted in the, in the South African political economy, as rooted in processes of class formation, which mm. of course cuts across social movements, cuts across political parties. And of course, we do have this really thriving civil society. Mm. Um, Michael mentioned certain organisations like Unite Behind and the Treatment Action Campaign. But what we see is civil society groups focusing on particular rights in the constitution and mobilizing around those. So for instance, there's one um, that I used to work for, Equal Education, which looked at the right to access to education in the constitution and said, you know, the argument was that because the infrastructure in many schools is so bad, this inhibited the child's right to an education. Mm. So what was mobilized behind was that we need certain norms and standards in schools with regards to, you know, bathroom facilities, with regards to desks, um, you know, as basic as, you know, having school structures that aren't made out of materials that are harmful like asbestos. Um, we, we're, going, we're really at the basics in many respects in South Africa still. So, and these are groups that really... They make things happen, um, you know, with the treatment action campaign. It's a mass campaign, and you know, in South Africa now, it's free access to antiretrovirals for everybody. Mm. So, when speaking about the political spectrum and you know, the left versus right, you also have this: you have civil society, which is almost performing the functions that a liberal or that a left mm. government should be doing. But the, it hasn't been able to coalesce into a meaningful political project, which mm -hmm. is contesting the ANC. So there have been attempts. There have been attempts to form coalitions based on these social movement activities, but unfortunately, they failed. So, in terms of civil society, are they somewhat like non-government or non-profit organizations, or is it like campaigns? Is it like labor groups that are involved, or student groups that are involved? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, they are, we'd say, NGOs or not-for-profit not organizations. Of course, they, pop, they have employees. A lot of them are also funded by foreign-funded. So there's also, of course, the race for funding. These groups compete for, for funding from different sources, international or philanthropic organizations right. and things. Some of them do have, on university campuses, they'll have satellite groups and so forth. Mm. But for the most part, they're sort of mass organizations. So for instance, I'll use Equal Education as an example. It organizes in schools across the country. Mm. So now Equal Education has offices in the West, in Western Cape, also in Johannesburg, also in the Eastern Cape, and also does a lot of work with schools in KwaZulu-Natal. And there'll be different campaigns. So in the one, it's a scholar transport campaign. And they organize in schools and have weekly groups with students in the school so it's really kind of the demands coming out of the schools mm -hmm. and you know what the learners want so this 
in this particular case, it's a movement of learners and teachers. Um, so it's different. It's not. It's depending on the organization, how broad it is, or whether it's more sort of think tank, you know, writing, you know, petitions to to government and so forth. It kind of depends on the organization and what their kind of modus operandi is. Yeah. So the the, the NGO model obviously has its has its has its limitations, right? And this is very different to what we experienced in the 1980s, where we had the organization or the movement was the United Democratic Front, the UDF. This was a mass-based people's grassroots mm -hmm. movement, which brought together people working on issue-based struggles under sort of a broad agenda, which was mm -hmm. to fight against the apartheid regime. But since the transition, the civil, well, the civil society space has become a civil society space, mm -hmm. right? Not a political, not a political, an actively political space. And I think that there are a lot of people who are trying to reactivate that spirit of, uh, of, of the UDF days. Many of them, many of these, of, of people who are prominent figures within uh, the social movements of the past joined the ANC. Yeah. And because they joined the ANC, they became part of the government machinery, mm -hmm. or they joined, they, they took up posts in academia, some of them even went into business. Mm. And so you had this sort of drift right. and uh, uh, a, in the, a hollowing out of the political of, of political activism, which is re-emerging slowly. So that the student movement, for example, was an organic that, that was an organic an organic movement that came uh, to to fight against fee increases and demanded free education, demanded curriculum change and and so on. But it couldn't gather momentum because there's no real sort of political home for these things in a, in a broad sense. And so the student movements, are they kind of disorganized in, in that sense? Is there at least unity among them? Is there large mobilizations of students on a regular basis? Like what is that? There wasn't. There wasn't up until uh, 2015, where the Roads Must Fall movement started at UCT, University of Cape Town. And that was a protest against the sort of the colonial, the colonial legacy on campus, a protest against institutional racism, a protest against the uh, inappropriate uh, curriculum design, and it focused on the figure of Cecil John Rhodes, who was, of mm. course, the infamous colonial ca uh, capitalist in South Africa and also in the former Rhodesia and, and so on. And there was a massive statue of him. When you walked into the University of Cape Town, there was Cecil John Rhodes. You know, it's ridiculous. So that, that movement was successful in getting him, getting that statue removed and sparking a sort of a, a conversation which touched on what we spoke about earlier, which was this deep frustration with the mm. legacy of, of, of the ANC, deep frustration with the reality of post-apartheid South Africa. And then that morphed into a national movement against fee increases. Mm. And that really attracted broad student support, but it was not able... It was not able to sustain momentum for a, vari for a variety of different reasons, some ideological, some organizational, mm. but it all relates back to this fact, the fact that this, this political space outside of the e electoral system in South Africa, there's been a vacuum. So mm. in a sense, you have this new generation who are articulating all of these frustrations, but they're doing it in a very ad hoc, directionless way, which leads to, to disabilities and uh, not being able to reach the uh, potential. So did the EFF then take up or like try to present itself as supporting these students? Uh, did it play a role in that at all? All of all of the political parties, mm. the ANC and the EFF, the, the student the student terrain was became contested terrain for political parties, mm. right? And this we could argue also led to the fragmentation of the student movement because right. then you had to show your party colors. Mm. The the University of Cape Town, where we are from, is traditionally a liberal institution. 
and uh, neither the EFF or the ANC student movements had a strong footing there, although that's changed now in the wake of the student movement. So there were other factors which led to, um, to for the student movement to be to be a consistent force at the life of the university, but particularly at Witz, which is the uni- University of Witzwaterstrand in Johannesburg, where you had serious contestations between students who were holding an ANC mm. flag and students holding an EFF flag. Oh, wow. And that that political interference in a way really undercut the ability of the students to, to sustain mobility and to yeah, create a coherent structure. And I think that that mm. played out across other campuses across the country too, for sure. Yeah, and also the issues that were trying to be addressed became quite sort of muddled up from the one, you know, the focus on getting this concrete structure removed. And once that was removed, things, you know, became a bit haphazard, um, you know, are we focusing on the material, on, on fees? Um, another issue was student housing. So there was something also quite powerful where students came and constructed shacks or what we call informal house, an informal house, like what you would see in a shanty town or a township in, in the middle of the university square. And this was called, you know, Shackville. And they said, you know, students are coming, they're getting accepted to the university and they come and then there's no housing mm. and students are, you know, sleeping in the library and, and, you know, this is an indignity and things. And then, of course, the police come and, you know, forcefully broke this thing down and things got very violent on campus with these student movements and the police were very militant in the way they were called and private security mm. companies basically treating you know, students like these menaces. So this was powerful. And then, of course, with the fees thing, that was huge groups of students, um, all of us sort of walking down the main road all the way to town and breaking down the parliamentary gates, mm, and wow. which was also, you know, being in the parliamentary precinct with police sort of in riot gear, throwing tear gas and things, and then looking up at the people working in the parliament just kind of peering over their balconies and right. you kind of get the sense of what are you doing Taking there like photos. come come down like yeah. be with us like we're not being violent here so those were you know those were some i think some incredible moments but then of course there you know the state initiated a commission of inquiry into <laughs> the potential for you know free fee free university education and you know then they were like we're dealing with it now we're dealing with it in a commission of inquiry and then things just fizzled out and then of course the zoomers so, so he announced in a, in a contrary way. to the findings of the commission mm-hmm. of inquiry said you know it's not really feasible in terms of finances and it mm-hmm. shouldn't be free for everyone and you know mm-hmm. they came with this measured response but then but zuma announced free free high education for poor and working class students but he did it mm-hmm. sort of as the last the last sigh before the Rum- before Ramaphosa, um, yeah, I mean that was. I mean th- we didn't discuss that, but that was a very tight race. Between, it, it wasn't mm. Jacob Zuma running; it was his wife who was running, and the idea was that she would serve as a sort of a proxy for the Zuma faction mm. within the ANC. And she was running against Cyril Ramaphosa. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is within the party, right. though. So the ANC electoral conference is always before the sort of national right. election. So there's potential for something quite awkward because then you have someone who's the head of the ANC but not the president. Right. So in the past two times, there's been a... The president actually gets basically, you must step down because now mm. you're not the head of the ANC. So, right. But the student mobilization then became uh, a hotly contested sort of terrain uh, right before the election, even internally to the ANC. 
Yeah, so we don't know what the process was, but it was sort of an overnight thing where Zuma just came out and said it's going to be it's going to be free for poor and working class um, individuals. But I actually don't know how that is being operationalized mm. at the moment, and it's something that I I would like to actually find out because people. I mean, I know people. I mean, then there's the question if you've got student debt and things, mm. you know, you'd want to. Say like, can I, can I get this paid right. for? Because I also can't afford this. So, did the unions then support the students? Yeah, absolutely. There, there were signs of of solidarity from the from the unions to 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 the students. But it, it again points to this sort of this vacuum of political political activity, the political consciousness that there wasn't a sustained progressive voice that was coherent and that set forth a. Uh, an agenda for change in the universities, but also connected the struggles to the universities to what's going on in the union mm. movement, what's going on in broader society. That didn't uh, really happen. But I think it would be important for us to speak about the union movement in general because we haven't we haven't spoken about about that at all. We spoke earlier about the ANC being in an historical alliance with the South African Communist Party, and that that date back into the, the early mid twentieth. 20th century, and then formally under the under apartheid and the the battle, the, the fight against the apartheid regime. But in the context of the 1970s and 1980s, there was the emergence of this massive trade union federation, which is called Kusatu. It was first called Fusatu, but then Kusatu, and it was actually led, uh, well, not led, but it, it was um, Sol Ramaphosa was a key a key movement in the union movement under the uh, 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 under apartheid. So it's, he's got a very interesting political. Biography. He then became a, a multi-millionaire businessman in the, con- mm. in the during the transition, which is an interesting, which is interesting discussion to have. But uh, the point is that the ANC then formed an alliance with Kusatu. There was an important conference. I think that Ramaphosa was in attendance because Kusatu was a far more militant, far more outwardly socialist mm. uh, trade union federation. And they also had within Kasata that were vying ideological tendencies, many of which were actively hostile to the ANC's liberation theory and and so on. But that was a, eventually a minority view, and the ANC, we can say, became the head of a what's what's known as the tripartite alliance, which is the the ANC supported by the South African Communist Party and Kusatu mm-hmm. and that alliance went into in the in the in the first few uh, years majority actually of the post apartheid era they formed a sort of a block and the communist party and the kusatu were supposed to be this left wing block of the ANC and in the uh, and but then what happened with this drift towards neoliberal leaning macroeconomic policy is that it became increasingly difficult for both the Communist Party and Kusatu to rationalize their continued support for the ANC. And that led to many individual comrades leaving the Communist Party, joining the social movements, trying out different experiments. Mm -hmm. But eventually it led to a split within Kusatu. So its most militant and biggest union, NUMSA, split from from Kusatu. And which workers are in NUMSA? So this is uh, National Union of... Middle workers. workers, South Africa. Yeah, mm. but uh, they they split about five years ago from the from Kusatu, mm. and recently the former general secretary of Kusatu, with leadership of NUMSA, have formed a rival trade fe- trade union federation mm. called 
SAFTU, which is the African Federation of Trade Unions. This is a recent development. And they are more outwardly socialist and the path to socialism for them lies outside of the ANC, whereas the Kusatu still, Kusatu and the Communist Party, what's left of them within the ruling alliance, they, they see their job is to basically help Ramaphosa to clear out the corruption from the Zuma ears, while at the same time pushing left-wing mm. progressive solutions within the ruling party. Um, are they still pushing left? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. definitely are. So, the, I mean, so what you said earlier about the ANC being a contested right. space, right? So the, the treasury within government has traditionally been the site of the neoliberal ideologues. And so when you hear the budget speeches, this is always going to be about austerity, cutting back, and so on. But the Department of Trade and Industry and other government departments, the ANC overseas, uh, are, run by, are run by communists. Mm. And they do have progressive, or they, they try to produce progressive economic policy, but these things are not taken up. Uh, but, but, but this is just to say that there is a, a contest and there, there would be Communist Party members who would say, look, these are the achievements mm. that we've made since the transition, even if you know, we failed on such and such a, such and such a basis. So the trade, union, the trade union movement is unfortunately split. And that, of course, leads to leads to difficulty. There, there have been attempts for Kasatu and Saftu to work together because obviously these are former comrades. These are f- people who worked with each other before and so on. But they, of course, they have serious divisions, serious ideological programmatic divisions now, which again contributes to this general political drift within the left, the general lack of, of a coherent social bloc. And it seems like, you know, among the contestations between the unions and, uh, and the NC has been a history of ANC playing a role in suppressing workers' struggles. Uh, I think the most infamous is the Americana massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, Claire, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So the Americana massacre occurred in 2012. And I mean, you can say in general, it is a culmination of centuries, I suppose, of a of exploitative working conditions that have been historically associated with the mining sector in South Africa, along with issues of migrant labor, families being, um, well, male laborers specifically, being sort of forced out of where they lived due to particular laws surrounding land, like the 1913 Land Act um, is most infamous for this. And so developing this, you know, hostels of people working and so forth. So what you have after the transition is, you know, some minor changes, but to a large extent, very similar working conditions, equally dangerous and low pay. So with the Marikana, what we call the Marikana massacre, or what in official discourse is referred to as the tragedy, is that you had a group of rock drill operators who arguably do, well, they do the most dangerous part of work, and they were asking for a pay increase to 12,500 rand, which is about $1,250 a month, um, Canadian, which was up, I think they were being paid like $5,000 or like $500 a month. And in the context of this, there was also some trade union conflict. Um, The main, which had been the strongest trade union in the area, the NUM, they um, were accused of, they've been bureaucratized and are not really looking after the interests of workers. So a rival union emerged called AMCU. So there was, you know, apparently this contest between these two unions. But what happened was before the, it was the 16th of August, 2012, 10 
days leading up to that, another 10 people had been killed in other conflicts. So one was when the workers were marching to the NUM offices on the mine, and then they were they were apparently shot. Um, there was another incident where Lonman, it was on, sorry, I didn't mention Lonman mine, it's a platinum mine in the platinum belt in South Africa. And a security guard was killed. And what happened then to, I can't, to kind of get there quickly on the 16th of August was that the police were called, um, a group of about 3,000 workers, mine workers were on strike and they were sitting on this copy um, called Wonderkop in protest saying, you know, we want the mining, we want the managers and the bosses to come and speak to us. We want to talk to them. We want to negotiate with them. The They didn't come. And um, eventually the police were called and there was, I mean, the commission of inquiry found like that there was actually premeditated murder here because you know they had like two hearses two or three hearses were called oh, they had like wow. five ambulances i mean the police were all armed with live ammunition um but ultimately what happened was the police started putting razor wire around this copy for some reason um so people were eventually they um decided they're going to try and leave and the police said that they felt they were being attacked and they opened fire on the on the group of mine workers and 34 were killed on that day um, and then of course there were the other 10 in the in the days before that so this was seen I mean it is um, I don't think it's an uncontroversial it's not controversial to say it the worst I think incidents of state-sponsored violence in a post-apartheid South Africa committed by the sort of liberation movement the ANC government um at the time, President, our now President, Cyril Ramaphosa, was also working. He was uh, one of the head people in Lonman. Mm. So there's this, you know, kind of toxic collusion between then the state security, Lonman as a company, and then, of course, also the, the role of the unions in relation to the state. Um, this is what the sort of event of Marikana has brought mm. to the surface. And then there was also, during the commission of inquiry that was set up following the massacre, emails, you know, that were found between Sol Ramaphosa and the head of the minerals and, and energy. So a lot came out of the, of the commission the of inquiry. And the police, um, which really raises a lot of questions surrounding the, the post-apartheid South African state in relation to mining capital. So did that massacre have a decisive effect on like the relationship between the NC and the unions? Eventually, yes. So after the massacre, we saw you know the rise of the EFF, the split in Kusatu, various other attempts by the left to mobilize a progressive politics, a socialist politics outside of the ANC, because this was clear evidence that when the push comes to shove, the party performs the role of the state in a in a capitalist in a capitalist regime yeah so even in a case where the workers are you know quote unquote black and the the ruling party is black and the police is black when it comes to defending the interests of the company the state's going to be yeah i mean side. this was all this was all predicted by in the in in debates on the left in in south africa when people were decide comrades were deciding about how to 
advance a socialist politics in the context of a decolonization or a type of decolonization politics or an anti-apartheid politics. And the, always the risk with this is that a comprador class forms. I mean, Fanon speaks about this in the pitfalls of national consciousness, right? Which is which is a fright, which is a, a frightening outline of the development of South, South Africa and post-apartheid South Africa in many ways. Not a perfect fit, but the broad outline is there. You have an indigenous elite forming, and the indigenous elite performs the necessary role within the state to keep the class structure intact. And they also then use as the legitimating ideology a very race reductive a race reductive form. This is about black empowerment. So we need more black CEOs because, you know, the whites have been in charge for so mm. long and so on. And so it becomes a really sort of toxic political and confusing political circumstance in that in that sense. Yeah. Then also linking that to the way the law is used. So following the Marikana massacre, the mine workers who had been on strike were actually charged with common purpose murder for their for their comrades that had had died that day who had been shot by the police which is actually a very kind of colonial application of of that specific law and this is the law that was used during apartheid to charge people who were protesting who were who were also killed when there had been excesses in the use of force to quell a riot or an uprising so you have these sort of reemergence of these past things and you're like won't be won't be past this yeah. um and on top of that um we spoke about the trc um previously but the the motto of the commission of inquiry established after the marikana massacre was truth restoration justice so you have this this attempt to whatever currency social currency or capital the trc did have to try and kind of squeeze mm. from that to to in this like effort to legitimate this post-apartheid state in the context of the the police having uh, being used to to kill these people who were exercising their democratic right but in this particular context it was a an illegal strike mm. because of you know it wasn't happening within the actual within the structures of the unions as it as it was meant to be so yeah it it raises so many issues with regards to these multinational corporations, the state, but also the law, and you know what the law is being used to do in this in this context, which can be really, yeah, not very emancipatory. Not at all. So the two of you have brought up uh, decolonization as a, as a term that is coming into usage. So what does that mean in the South African context, and what does that mean, you know, in relation to the stuff that we are talking about now of uh, post-apartheid relations with race and class? Um, yeah, this is a very, very heated heated um, conversation and uh, can be a heated conversation amongst people who are involved in this debate in South Africa at the moment, the meaning of decolonization. The way in which I approach it is I said, well, you know, decolonization is basically, the meaning of the word is basically empty until you give politics to it, right? And there are a variety of different political approaches to, uh, to decolonization in South Africa. At the moment, some people believe that decolonization is simply the transfer of political and economic power from the former white or settler elite into the hands of a of a new black black class. And um, 
Uh, I don't think that 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 is an appealing an appealing ideology of decolonization at all because it leaves these contradictions firmly in place, which are embedded within a social within the social structure of of capitalism. But at the moment, the anti-cap- anti-capitalist politics, uh, when it is articulated with the politics of decolonization in South Africa, is done in a very in, still in a very sort of um, how do I put it, in a superficial moralistic. Type of, so capitalism is bad, capitalism is an extension of colonialism, but there's no real attention paid to the specific class structure and the specific uh, modes of politics that are needed to, to overcome that. And then, of course, there's a, there's a strand of decolonization theory, which is openly hostile to any analysis of capitalism whatsoever. So they think that the, an analysis that foregrounds capitalism is somehow indicative of a Western European methodology look this is on the this is on the fringes of South African political debate at the moment and it's mostly located on university campuses and the interesting parallels between the discussion of decolonization taking place in North in the North American context and in the in certain European contexts on universities with what's going on in, in South Africa at the moment because there is this movement of intellectual ideas mm. many of which are totally foreign to the history of decolonization thinking in South Africa, whether that took place in the ANC or the Communist Party or the PAC or even black consciousness to, to a degree. So what does decolonization mean? Uh, it really, I, it depends on what you, what you, what you make of it. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a relatively new slogan in South Africa. Yeah, um, there's a tendency for it to be sort of quite crudely in the sense of well i can speak about in 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 universities at least how how it's been spoken about on the one hand okay it's yes it's decolonizing curriculums so one of the arguments is why do we have a department of african studies in an african university Mm -hmm. everything should just be african right like there shouldn't be this so we need to relook at our curriculums and we need to have more people from sort of the continent or global south and um, then, of course, it's like, well, then, do they have to live here? Going to be in the diaspora? You know, what? of course, there are all those tricky things. But then also just in terms of who is the lecturer, who's employed, who's on the board of the university. Um, of course, another issue then is, you know, are we just going with, you know, what you're born as, like skin color or nationality and things, or are we going with ideas? So there are all these these tricky things, and the university has tried to formalize these processes by issuing these, you know, curriculate curriculum change documents and you know bureaucratizing the process. But it's running into all of these these issues, which can tend to be quite nativist and almost racist. On their on their own because they end up running into these issues of well, if you are a you know brown woman then you can you know represent or brown woman in this particular view which, of course we know isn't doesn't really work. I mean, what's interesting is that when, you, when the both of you were talking about the student protests, um, they of course started off with the Cecil Rhodes his statue, um, which you know can be an example of a decolonizing kind of act of getting rid of the statue. Um, but it's it quickly transitioned into other ne- economic material, stuff about fees and such. And so to what extent is decolonization a framework like allowing for a left, or is it a gateway discourse to other left stuff about university, or is it like distracting 
from that? It could be. It could be. It's just it's, it, as, as I said, it was the slogan was at least it, it was. Look, the way in which the the liberation struggle was framed in South Africa was, you know, we're fighting for decolonization, but we're fighting for national liberation. That was the discourse of many like sort of liberation projects in the 20th century. This word decolonization has taken on a particular academic meaning mm. and within within intellectual within within academic spaces in the post-colonial environment but also in, in North America in North American universities look the issues that the students took up at the University of Cape Town and across the country in South Africa were real issues issues about demographic representation issues about fees issues about housing issues about curriculum all of these things are totally legitimate but depending on what your particular worldview is mm. and your particular idea of what constitutes a better society you're going to approach these things in a different in a different in, in, in a particular way so mm. you can say decolonization but all you really mean is you want to replace white lecturers with black lecturers and unfortunately in this context of a vacuum on the left mm. in South Africa where these debates were not being had because there was no venue for the debates to take place that these type of productive conversations were not they did happen because the students were the students did bring in new vocabulary and they did bring new force and energy to this conversation about realizing social justice in a post apartheid dis- dispensation but it it wasn't getting to the level of depth that 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 I think needed to needed to happen in that in that context so decolonization can be because it brings forth real issues but then it's it really depends on the balance of political forces and the and the political energy that's being put behind a concept uh, yeah i agree with michael it uh, yeah it's a yes and no thing one of the i think gains again of things that uh, the uh, students were were pushing for was the insourcing of workers at the university itself which was something that the you know left students forum and people had been pushing for for a long time and suddenly with following the momentum of the roads must fall and the fees must fall and the patriarchy must fall and we must insource workers and everyone sort of got on board and then you know a process was initiated in the university but again you know it was that moment where there was energy behind it and i don't i don't think that 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 momentum is there anymore and i think partially because then it becomes taken up by the bureaucratic structures of the university and that's where it's now being contested yeah so decolonization just becomes a new academic chic term mm-hmm. right and uh, which is really about securing mobility in the in the academy and so on and so that's but that's the risk but that's because it's located within a specific social arena in societies which are universities which can't help but be a site of elite accumulation in a capitalist society so these are the mm-hmm. the types of contradictions the type of political conversations that need to yeah they need to be foregrounded i think in the yeah. conversation of decolonization and i think when what you guys are saying about decolonization its frustrations and contradictions are very much uh ring true for the canadian context as well that you know we have this glaring problem of the oppression of indigenous people in this country and that as a legacy of colonialism it still stands so something you know anti-colonial or something to foreground that legacy is important but the decolonizing lens that is used here often on the left and in academia as you guys are saying it doesn't it can't do anything it sort of just reproduces itself in citations and conferences and publications without figuring out like how, what would that mean on the ground concretely especially in a context like south africa where 
black and brown people are the majority. Yeah. On the UCT campus, black and brown people are the majority. So it's not like in Canada where, you know, there's a, you, you know, you are still a minority. Um, yeah, it's it, the question of decolonization. You have to really do thinking mm -hmm. because it's like, but what exactly needs to be decolonized and, and how becomes more pressing where you realize like, is race is race the only proxy we can be thinking about? Well, clearly, no. Yeah, and so th there's an attempt with intersectionality to sort of speak about these cross-cut, and that intersectionality was a term that that was popular amongst uh, student protests, student protesters um, in South Africa. Of obviously, the term, the utility of the term, can be debated and so on, but it was an attempt to sort of articulate this difference in experiences of oppression and and so on. But um, in South Africa, it was not articulated within this broader historical conversation about national liberation and decolonization, which, of course, is, an I think, an important point to make, that this was happening, these debates, these, these debates were happening outside of campus life, you know, these were real, these were political debates in motion, in struggle. So that means they take on a particular flavor, take on a particular urgency, different types of priorities. Yeah, I mean, uh, in Canada, we usually, you know, the, the left that kind of bemoans that this is what the left has become um, of intersectionality and identity politics and decolonization, we usually chalk that up to the, the absence of uh, an alternative left, um, that we don't have uh, much of a socialist presence or communist presence. But in South Africa, there has been, and, and, and it was such a key part of the anti-apartheid, anti-colonial struggle. And even if now it's uh, more marginal, it's still part of the ruling party. And so like, I guess some of the decolonizing stuff is actively coming against or coming up, is it butting heads against the socialist communist trends? Yeah, or, the, or just a different, for, for some it would be a different different brand of socialism, uh, a, mm -hmm. a different, you know, so what became popular was this Cedric Robinson type black Marxism, which is more focused on epistemic and culturalist issues and 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 so on. But what what inevitably had to, what happened with the student movements is that the ones that are seriously politically engaged, and many of them, many of many, many of these students, many of these students are, they had to come into conversation with other traditions of thought within South Africa because when they enter the union movement or they enter the social movement space, people are speaking a different type of a different type of language. And there can be, and there was sort of productive productive ex exchanges between between the two but that process as you say ha happens in South Africa because even though the left is marginal it's still a force in South mm -hmm. Africa's in South Africa's society so these ideas had to be tested the ideas of decolonization that developed on campus had to be tested in political life if the students wanted to leave the university and also you look at the university I mean especially the University of Cape Town which is where we both studied that is a very privileged university compared to other universities in the country. Um, and this was actually an issue when Roads Must Fall happened. Pe people at the uh, at other universities said, we've been striking for years about this. We didn't get the press, you know, suddenly this is, suddenly some privileged students are getting like pushed around by the police and the whole world, you know, the whole country stands still. So then the issue of decolonization isn't even really isn't really huge there because students are really just trying to get the basics like or just framed in a different way yeah it's, it's yeah it's, yeah 
Because even there, in those universities, the black students are going up against the black university administration. And black and like, police. And black police, yeah. Yeah. So the class stratification has become pretty clear in post-apartheid South Africa, which you would imagine would be useful in terms of, in terms of ideological clarity or theoretical mm-hmm. clarity about, you know, the potential for a sort of a, an homogenous black movement, nationalist movement. But I mean, there was never really that type of naivety, even within the ANC, mm. e- even within the black consciousness. But there was always this, as we said, this recognition, this threat that in a post-colonial situation, there's a threat of this of a, mm. of a comprador of a comprador class, of a, a compromised political and indigenous political elite. Yeah, I guess that is interesting. Like how much that stays on the forefront of struggle and how people negotiate with that, of like seeing that as the main issue of that comprador class, of the class inequality versus also the legacies of apartheid that are enduring and continue and don't necessarily always manifest themselves in class terms, but often do. Sure, because there's still, there's still, there is, of course, the discrimination um, and there are cultural forms of alienation, psychological forms of alienation, which are, you know, re- which are real and, and cannot be reduced to sort of class, class position. Um, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, to- social liberation can't take place without class mm-hmm. and without foregrounding, well, at least in, in our view, without foregrounding a critique of capitalism. Because if you don't do that, then you, this, the structure remains, remains in place. So, I mean, that's a lesson that we can draw from the, the South African post-colonial experience, I think or post-apartheid experience. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, guys. This has been a really great discussion. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can write to contact at oatspodcast.com. Remember, once again, to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. And if you're able to support us, please go to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast and become a patron of the podcast.